Salutations and shit, folks. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Travel and Shit, your new favorite travel podcast where I, your host, D. Carrie, have an experiential travel that, you know, kind of gets the point across that travel is so much more than vacation. Uh, to those of you that are new, welcome. Take your shoes off, mm. get comfy. And um, if you've been here before, appreciate you for rocking with me and my little uh, furry co-host that is, I promise you, down here. Again, just a heads up if you hear smacking. I'm not that talented. I can't talk and smack at the same time. It's my co-host, the dog Binksy. If you would like to get your dose of the extra cute, be sure to watch the podcast on, uh, about to say Instagram, what's the thing called? The YouTubes on YouTube. And I would absolutely appreciate if you did me the favor of free support and leave a review for the podcast so you're welcome it's not another solo episode i got a guest for y'all so my beautiful guests welcome and thank you for joining me on travel and shit let the people know who you is oh my goodness i love you good <laughs> <laughs> Hey, everybody. I am Tiffany Lachelle Smith, host of the podcast Abroad in Education, where I unpack the international suitcase through interviews with EdPats. And EdPats are expatriates working in education outside of their home countries. So a little bit about me. I am from Alton, Illinois, uh, across the bridge from St. Louis. No, I'm not from Chicago. I'm five hours south. Oh, um, I immediately yeah. just assume like, oh, she's by Chicago because the entire <laughs> state is Chicago, right? <laughs> okay, but okay, so I, I got to do this because I had this amazing conversation with my dad yesterday and I have a way, regardless of wherever I am, I have a way of um, letting folks know what Alton is, who we are, why we're on the map. I'll just do one, but uh, usually, no, I'm going to do two because usually okay. there's three things. Well, I'm going to just do all three. Do, all, do three. all three. Right. What's significant about Alton? Um, Robert Wadlow, the tallest man in the world, eight foot, 11 inches was born in Alton, Illinois. Okay. So my town is known for Robert Wadlow. Um, we are rated the most haunted small town in the nation. Um, we have the folks that come in and, you know, go to the McPike mansion and do the par- paranorma. Is that yes. Yes. Activity? Up my alley. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm into Alton. all the shits. Yeah. Come to <laughs> From a distance. I will watch all your documentaries, listen to all your podcasts <laughs> and view all of your movies. I yes. don't know that I could do that. I find that I am a very, um, the older I get, the more receptive I feel I am to energies. That's one thing. Uh, uh, shout out to my mama. She was like, um, never, ever put your hands on a Ouija board. You don't open yourself up to those energies. Yeah. We don't do that in my house. And so it was just like, I knew Ouija boards, not with the shits, but we would always watch like X-Files together. We would watch um, <laughs> Freaky Links. That was a show from like the early 2000s. I feel like the 90s at some point, like we were always get into supernatural stuff, but you, y'all can keep it. I'll read, the, I'll read everything about y'all. I don't know Look. if I could go. <laughs> well, well I'm now I'm scary. Good. I've never even been, and and it's not even the Ouija board for me. It's spirits kind of attaching themselves to you, yeah. and then you uh-huh. know taking coming home with you. Uh-huh. But that's the that's the significant thing as far as why we're haunted. There were we had some of the first prisons here, you know, with mental patients, neglect, all that stuff. 
And when they knock the prisons down, they use the brick to build houses. So they oh, say the spirits kind of disperse. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm good. I'm so good. they okay. So then the last one is, and this is bad, but uh MLK. Okay. Uh James Earl Ray, who assassinated MLK, or at least who took the rep. Or no, I don't even think he took the rep, who was accused of gotcha. assassinating MLK. Uh is from Alton. So oh, well, yeah, that's, that's not a good one, but it's there. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> that's why we've heard of y'all. All the, go- all the ghosts and then just a random tall dude. Got it. Right. Who would have lent himself to the whole skinny man or this tall man or the dark man um, uh, thing that in the paranormal worlds. Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. That whole paranormal haunted areas that has like piqued my interest at the same time, giving me dear diary. We ain't going, you know, like I'm good. <laughs> not visiting there you would enjoy it we have wineries we have the mississippi you know it's it's an amazing town i'll check out the mississippi from the other side you know like yeah (laughs) across the road but tell me more about yourself so what do you um discuss on your podcast what have your travels been like get into it yeah i'm a teacher i'm a teacher y'all so um, I have been in the teaching profession for over a decade now. I'm getting older. My birthday's coming up, so I'll be 35. Um, <laughs> 35 is a fun year. I'll tell you that. It just feels good to be finally mid thirties. I'll be 36 in August. And I got to say 35 was a time. I don't, a whole I don't pandemic have to 35. Well, now that it, I, and guess what? 34. I had one of the best birthdays. I had one of the best birthdays, this pandemic birthday. It was incredible. Amazing. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Cause 34 was the pandemic and I actually was in bed on my birthday last year. So that sick. sounds like my new year. I think Year's. I had COVID. Oh no. I don't know. Oh, that I don't know. Because you know, it was before, right. you know, the diagnosis and stuff, but I had the flu. Right. Some. That's just before we were told as a public because right. we were in right. good, in Trump's America, as opposed to, you know, Mm-mm. I was More. in Russell Kama. I was, oh, I was where the hell is that? Where's that? Uh, yeah, the UAE. Abu Dhabi, huh? Dubai. Russell Kama is the the emirate that's most furthest north before you get to Oman. So I was in Russell Kama, sick with COVID, in the bed for my birthday. Never even heard of the place. Wow. Yeah. Look, yeah. Ain't, ain't the world something? <laughs> you could be here, part of said world, and be like, I've never heard of you. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> That's what we do though. We get out in the world and we bring our stories back. So this is so tell me about part. your story. Yeah. So, so two years teaching in Illinois, I actually worked mm-hmm. in a town outside of Alton, Eversville, Illinois, where SIUE is. And then um, after working for two years in Illinois, I went to Casablanca, Morocco, worked in Casablanca for two years. And then after that, I was in Abu Dhabi, uh, UAE for nearly three years. I ended up quitting my job in the middle of the school year and coming on back home. Mm-hmm. That was the near 30, you know, you out here playing in the world, get home and get serious about life. But um, since I've been home the past five years, I've been in a PhD program at the University of Minnesota. Uh, my program is organizational leadership, policy and development. And my dissertation study uh, examines U.S. teachers, African-American U.S. teachers who leave the U.S. system for uh, teaching opportunities in the UAE. So it's teacher attrition and just kind of understanding decision making for why we leave. Okay, so that's me. 
that is the gist or part of the gist that I want this week's conversation to go. I am very curious about your dissertation topic, but I'm also curious um, on your experience from the lens of education being an impetus for travel. So I know mm -hmm. that in my experience, my mom was a teacher, my grandmother was a teacher. So I, you know, feel as if I get it. Y'all, like yeah. teachers are, I feel, listen, I have a, a special spot in my heart for teachers. I understand <laughs> the stresses. I, I get it differently than somebody that says, oh, well, I was a student, so I get what teachers go through. Well, no, like I lived with an educator. I have seen what y'all deal with. And I also have a lot of friends mm. and family that are involved in different uh aspects of the education system. And my mom actually discouraged me from being a teacher when I was younger, because, you know, as a kid, you just kind of want to be what you see, right? So I'd yeah, seen, you know, yeah. my grandma's a teacher, my mom's a teacher. So I said, oh, I'm gonna be a teacher. And my mom always told me, mm -hmm, girl, all right, you, you have a lot to give the world. You do, you're awesome. However, maybe not as a teacher, because right. she knew that the way that I would want to educate is not conducive to uh, writing a syllabus, having a curriculum that I have to stick to and writing lesson mm. plans. And thanks mom for that. Cause, um, I don't see that I would have enjoyed teaching in the way that I would have been asked to do it in terms of what my spirit on the other yeah. hand would, uh, bring it. Yeah. So as someone that however, has applied to teach English online, I, can understand that there's a difference in being a teacher abroad and then teaching English online. So I really want to have you give a voice to that distinction and then you have a really incredible topic for your dissertation. So we'll, we'll go there. So when you mentioned that you started teaching in Illinois first, what were you teaching? Was it a primary education? Was it secondary education um, or what? particular uh like were you a language arts teacher or science teacher yeah. what was your yeah. experience like in the states and then why did you decide to you know transfer those skills to education abroad yeah yeah great question um so my degree is in early childhood studies and okay. i actually went to northern illinois university near chicago um so <clears throat> when i started hmm Trying to think about where do I even go with this? So, okay, in my teacher preparation program, right? So let's start with uh, me even preparing to become a teacher. Um, I did have the opportunity to study abroad and I studied abroad to South Africa my junior year uh, with a program called Education as an Agent for, so for Social Change. So I went to South Africa. I got to go to Johannesburg, Durban, and Soweto. And we're supposed to be examining the education system, you know, how people experience the education system going into the schools and all that stuff. But the whole time during our six weeks there, the teachers were on strike. Mm. So 
it was one of those things where, you know, here I am in the U.S. preparing to become a teacher where, you know, we have unions, you know, like you're saying, we have curriculum, we have a very strategic way of doing school and doing education. And then I'm over in South Africa, like, okay, these teachers are exuding autonomy, like they in the streets, like, this is the problem. And this is what we want. Now, this is before the strikes and stuff that, you know, we were having here 2007. Yeah, okay. So I had never seen protests, teachers protesting. And in South Africa, it's very strategic. Like they're out chanting and dancing and, you know, it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So for me, being a black woman in South Africa, it was a lot of identity transformation that I was experiencing as well, because a lot of the South Africans looked at me as if I was South African. Like I had my micro braids going, you know, I got my, my color complected skin and they were just so surprised to know that I wasn't South African. And I'm with a group of white students. It's 12, well, no, it's 12 of us. So I would say there's like four black students um, and three of them were biracial. So they were dealing with their own identity issues too. Yeah. So in South Africa, um, I think for me, I was able to see education on a global scale and just that initial inkling of being abroad and then being welcomed by, you know, particular spaces in this foreign country while abroad, I wanted to go abroad, you know, and, and whether teaching was going to get me there or whatever was going to get me there. I'm like, I'm going back abroad. So when I got back to the States and, you know, I'm, I'm finishing up my teacher preparation preparation program, you know, you have to do your student teaching, you know, you're going into all these classrooms and stuff. And it didn't matter how diverse the students were. I mean, you got black and brown kids, you got title one kids where all of the kids are black and Hispanic, you know, it didn't matter where I was. And what's title one for someone that doesn't, that isn't sure. Cause shout out to my international listeners. Hey, (laughs) no, Title one is going to be your low income schools where a certain percentage of the students qualify for a free and reduced lunch. Um, So it's like low economic. um, No, it's not urban. It's not, you know, it's it's across the board, wherever it is. Uh, So even though the students were diverse, black and brown, in front of every classroom was a white teacher. So, you know, you always talk about representation when it came to envisioning myself as a U.S. teacher, particularly from the classrooms that I was welcomed into, I didn't feel like I fit, right? I didn't Mm -hmm. see no Black teachers. And even if I did, it was probably one in a school. So um, finishing up my teacher prep program, I was like, I don't even want to teach, right? I'm going to finish this degree because I started it, but I want to go to the Peace Corps, right? Because in my mind, that was the only thing that I knew that would take me back abroad. So I still remember going to this info session on campus, Black woman came, right, representation, Black woman came and did this whole webinar, well, webinar, did this whole presentation about uh, Peace Corps. So I started the application, girl, they want your medical records, (laughs) they want your dental records, they want your debt, who's going to be responsible for your debt while you're gone, you know, what they they wanted so much information that I ended up getting a job before I finish the application. So when I, when I talk about like teaching, I say, I kind of fell into the classroom because my intention was not to be there. Gotcha. So, yep. I started teaching, came, I came back home. That's the thing I started teaching. And after my first year, um, well, I guess, yeah, my first year I was working in a school. I had a black principal. She's still my friend to this day, Dr. Tanya Patton. Um, the kids were black and brown. (laughs) (laughs) kids were black and brown 
Um, and it wasn't necessarily like uh, low income, it was kindergarten readiness. So I had a spectrum of low income stool, school students to you know students that came from middle class, you know, upper class families. And if there were any issues with, you know, social, you know, behavioral, whatever, they could come into this program. So my first year was amazing. I was a novice okay. teacher and I'm in there. But the second year is where the problem started because I was involuntary transferred to a rural school and mm. I was the only black teacher in this, what we, what we would call today a trunk town. I was the only black teacher in this school and it was probably like 195 students. I wouldn't even say 2% of the kids were black and brown. It was like a white space and they put me out there by myself. So within that first year, I started taking my master's. Um, I started pursuing my master's degree, taking courses for that. And I met a young woman, uh, Patty from Brazil, who told me about this international teaching. You know, it had never been discussed in my teacher preparation program. Her mother was a principal in Kuwait, and she put me in touch with her mom, who put me in touch with some teachers, Black teacher out there teaching in Kuwait, and she's like, you know, this is what it's like for me. Make sure you be, you're ready to take naps, because these kids are different, right? They're going to wear you out. You're going to need oh, a wow. nap in the middle of the day. But I was like, sounds like fun to me. So right. started researching teaching abroad, and um, by that January, my grandmother and I drove up to the University of Northern Iowa. They have an international recruiting fair every year. And that's when I was hired to go to Casablanca, Morocco. So I always say that study abroad was my trajectory to my international teaching career because it was really, you know, seeing education in another country and then also seeing myself as a Black American, you know, in another space. So the rest is history. So a question for you. I... Mm -hmm think that that's one view like I hadn't considered it until you just mentioned it that a lot of times our teachers are as out of place as some of these children feel like in these classrooms I always consider oh, what it's like to have you know white representation and white faces and white teachers in front of you for you know um your primary development, right? I know one of those questions that in the black community, I know we've been hearing asked is when did you have your first black teacher? I came from the exact opposite experience where all my teachers were black. I remember like my first mm. white teacher because I went to a community school. I went to a private school in my community, but it's like all the kids looked like me and 80% of our teachers were black as well. Well, maybe not 80%, maybe 80%. It was a small school. So we didn't have you know, that many classes and that many teachers, but I had white teachers, but I also had black teachers. You know, I had black women. Well, my mom worked at my school. So I had black women yeah. that were responsible for telling me what to do. So it wasn't like my mom or my immediate family were the only black faces of authority that I'd seen. And I know that that's a privilege um, for some students to have, for children to have. But in that same vein, I'd never considered what it's like for our black teachers, our black, mm. you know, educators to be in spaces where all the kids looking at them and the kids they're responsible for reprimanding and being in charge of don't look at them with that same level of respect because at home, perhaps they're being taught that someone that doesn't look like you isn't really necessarily worthy of, you know, authority, respect. So Amen. it's kind of hard to Amen. teach a bunch of children who are being taught 
whether directly or indirectly, because we understand that children don't always learn based on what you're saying to them. It's one thing to tell your kids, everyone is special. Everyone, you know, is important and we don't see color. I'm doing the air quotes here if you aren't watching. You know, we don't see color, but then that also leaves space for, but how do you treat the cashiers when you go other places? But how do you treat, you know, your servers when you go other places? Like, how do you treat black and brown people or people that just don't look like the people in your household look so that your children are able to now be guided in the best, you know, practices when they're met with people that don't look with, that don't look like them outside of their home. And well, damn, I never considered that it's a rough go at it for a lot of teachers when their classes don't look like they do, or when their classes aren't necessarily, um, reinforced with listening to that voice as someone that should be respected as an authority. Yeah. Well, Dee, let me, because, so the beautiful thing is now that I'm in this academic space, I do have the privilege to reflect on a lot of my experiences and write about them and share them publicly. So one of the instances that I was writing about yesterday, um, I always think, and there were, there were many instances that happened to me at that school, but there's one that I talk about, uh, I've talked about it a couple of times. I was reflecting on it yesterday. So one day, um, because, because it is a white school, let's just call it that it's a white school. Um, there was a black man who had come to visit for some reason. And to this day, I still don't know, but I had left my classroom because I'm walking to the gym to go and pick the kids up from PE. So I'm walking past the main office and he's sitting in a chair outside of the main office. And I saw him and I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, brother, good morning. How you doing? How you doing? Right. I'm good. Okay. So I go get the kids and, you know, I have them lined up. I'm getting ready to go back to the classroom and we always stop by the water fountain. So because they had to pass, you know, our black visitor, black gentleman, um, I heard them kind of snickering, ha ha ha, you know, kind of giggling all this stuff. So I'm like, get your drink. One, two, three. That's enough for me. Let's go. Mm -hmm. So we get back to the classroom and, you know, because they're in a line, they're going in one by one, right? One by one. And it was a little girl who stopped and looked up at me and she was like, Miss Smith, is he your cousin? And I, you know, it kind of took me back like, okay, I could see how you could, you know, see that. No. He's right. not my cousin, right? And I'm like, now I know what the chatter was about, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he black, she black, they must be cousins. So I, I was just like, no, he's not. And then they kept going, kept going. It was the last boy, one of my, I, I call him Justin, you know, in the in the article that I'm writing, I call him Justin. And it was one of those like, you know, like when, when you're teaching a concept and the kid doesn't get it and like you're steady trying to teach this concept and then they finally get it and it's just this excitement. Yes. It was one of those faces where he looked at me and he was like, oh, it's because you're black. And I was like, okay, so you're making connections about like my identity, I, w- I felt like this big. And, and it, I mean, even when I think about it today, I'm like, it's really not a big deal, but at the same time, it's a huge deal. Yeah. So I took it to my principal, like, you know, this is what happened. This is my second year teaching. I'm a novice teacher, right? Who's gonna support me? And this is in addition to some of some, uh, some other things that happened. But she looked at me and she was like, I wonder why he'd say something like that, you know? And just kind of dismissed it. Like, where would that come from? Like, 
happened. I was girlfriend. like, so here's my, here's my letter of recognition, resignation. I'm up mm-hmm. out of here. Right. <laughs> Cause clearly Figure I that don't out belong. While I'm out of here. Figure it out without me. <laughs> Thanks. Respectfully. Yeah. <laughs> But you're absolutely right, though. I mean, some of these white kids, right, they have mm-hmm. never really engaged in a personal conversation with someone right. that looks different from them. So I guess I was like the guinea pig for them. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a lot of that, you know, I won't learn from you, even if I'm telling you the truth, even if I'm telling you, right, like everything that I'm saying is this, you won't take it from me because I look different from you. Right. Damn. What is that or how? Have you, I guess is the better question to ask, have you experienced that abroad? Or is that something that you feel that you may have only experienced in that way in the United States? It is very, and, and I'm, I'm, a speak, I'm speaking on my own experience, but I'm also speaking on behalf of the life historians that are part of my dissertation study. It is very much... <sighs> It's easier to be Black and abroad than to be Black in the States. It is very much easier to teach as a Black American teacher abroad Hmm. than a Black American teacher in the States. I cannot, because like for you, you know, in your experience being in a school where you do have a good population of Black people, I can't speak on that behalf. But some of the life historians in my study do come from, you know, urban schools and, you know, uh, black, like Hispanic populations, black populations, um, even first gen, uh, first gen African-Americans folks who, you know, are are coming (laughs) into the States. Um, So I can't speak on, you know, having that experience, but it has been consistent across the board that to be a black teacher, you know, it's so much easier abroad. Now, even when I'm saying that D is, is problematic in so many ways, because, really, it is my, it's the fact that I was conditioned in, you know, a a powerhouse, right? I'm American. So that blue passport privilege is real. Um, The way that I speak English, right? It's the flat, no accent, right? There's a lot of power and privilege. And even being like an American ambassador abroad, I'm carrying a lot of those colonist views, imperialism, like I'm representing a country that has really done a disservice to a, to a lot of countries globally. We don't shit on everybody um, along the way to get girl, where us, we are. Us in the UK, us in the UK and the UK yeah. got it worse. So for me, it is, you know, one of those like bittersweets you're being, and, and the fact that, you know, American and British education is for sale and the mm-hmm. highest bidder or the, the parents who can afford this private education, yes. Um, yes. you know, they can, they can educate their kids to be able to qualify to get into the Harvards and the Stanford's mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm part of that, you know, when I'm, when yeah. I'm teaching abroad, I'm, I'm part of that. And it's one of those things where I really have to question myself because, okay. So can we talk about black teachers just for a second? Cause I know Please. we haven't Absolutely. touched on it yet. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is, this is where I get excited because this is part of the research. So, um, and I'm going to just start with some statistics. Um, In 1950, uh, especially when you're looking at like the U.S., when you're looking at the U.S. population in teaching, in 1950, um, half of all Black professionals in the States were teachers. So um, many of us, like if if there were, you know, um, if there were 2 million Black students, there were like 80,000 teachers, right? 
Okay. So um, you, there's a couple of scholars who use this uh, Brown v. Board, the court case mm-hmm. of like integration, as uh, they say the unintended consequences of Brown v. Board. And okay. one of the unintended consequences was the wholesale dismissal of Black teachers. So when you have oh. all of these Black schools closing, you have Black students integrating into white schools, but the Black teachers are not coming over to the white schools. Ah. So between, between 1954 and 1972, I mean, goodness, uh, more than 40,000 teachers and administrators lost their jobs, right? Because Black students were you know, now integrated into these white schools. So when we look at these numbers, as, and, and this is historical, right? Mm-hmm. Um, comparing it to, what is it? 2012 to, two, no, 1986. So this, this is like statistics. Um, what is it called? The school and school and staff survey or something like that. They carry statistics uh, from 1987. That's when it started all the way until now. So okay. when you look at the percentage and proportion of African-American teachers, um, between 1987 and 2012, we decreased. So we were representing like 8.2% of the teaching population and we decreased to 6.7. So even as the teacher workforce is getting bigger, you have uh, Hispanic teachers, right? Hispanic teachers are increasing in proportion. Asian teachers are increasing in proportion, but African-American teachers continue to decrease. And that means we're either not going into these teacher prep programs or we're entering the system and leaving, right? And there's a lot of studies that talk about why we leave, but none of the studies are talking about African-American teachers who leave to go and teach abroad, right? Got it. So many, and I think it's New York too, y'all doing it, teacher shortage, right? In order to Uh address the teacher shortage, Teachers from abroad are being recruited to come and teach in the hard to staff subjects, hard to staff schools. So you have Filipino teachers, Caribbean teachers, you know, teachers that are coming from all these other countries to come and teach in the States to, you know, address our teacher shortage. Ain't nobody talking about the teachers that leave. We leave it. We go into other countries talking about, I have a better experience teaching over here than what I do in the States. There's something that's missing. There is something that's missing. So one, we're not represented at all, you know, when it comes to the U.S. education system. Two, there's not a lot of conversations about how did we get to 6.7? Y'all kicked us out. Especially being the highest educated demographic. Black women are the highest. Higher ed. We got the degrees. Yes. We the ones in school, but it seems like we're not the ones teaching. Exactly. Exactly. So it's just, it's, I, oh my goodness, I was reading, um, well, actually somebody sent me a, a article from Minnesota uh, Star Tribune, I think that's what it's okay. called. And on the front page, it's this black teacher and he's just like so excited uh, in front of this, this uh, classroom. And they're saying, you know, we're going to raise $80 million to recruit more black male teachers to go into these primary schools because the numbers show that if black boys are exposed to black teachers, their graduation rates increase. And I'm like, okay, so how long is that going to be sustained? You keep recruiting, right? The answer yeah. is not just recruiting. You can't just keep, it's like plantation, retain them. right? We just yeah. don't, exactly, retention. And in conversations about retention, they were, they were bragging about like, oh, he calls his parents and gives praise notes and all that stuff. Okay, 
that might be year one and two but what happens in year three when he burnt out tired of these Mm -hmm. kids tired of these parents tired of these policies tired of these and he's working at a white school as well tired of these microaggressions daily microaggressions you know so it's 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 when I talk about like the 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 root right my my dissertation study I use r-o-u-r-o-u-t-e-s root root from the states to another country um that's part of it you know that that's part of the conversation we 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 ain't got nowhere else to go so may as well go see what's happening in Abu Dhabi hmm oh damn see this is why this is such a (laughs) dynamic um conversation and you don't think about retention you really don't because I know that that's one of those things that I've heard mentioned so much more I don't know what the percentage um but I know that there was that question of when was the first time you had a black teacher right and it's I don't know if we spoke about it in this episode or if it was in our conversation prior like I know that it's such a blessing for me to have had so many black faces educate me in my um most um what's the word not for yeah formative years is that the right word is that the right Mm um yeah in my you know my early my developmental years I had a lot of black and brown faces well black faces that were in charge of me I didn't have in high school that was my first real experience in terms of I don't think I had a single black teacher in high school no that was the first time I actually went to a school with white kids and the first time I never I did not have a black face in charge of me now that I'm thinking of all them faces, all them different teachers, a different teacher for every subject, not a single black face. Well, damn. But, but Dee, remember, 2003. You, and you said that your, your excitement for education was impacted. So maybe it was like a whole cross-cultural yeah. encounter going from the black over to the white space. And, and yeah. Because yeah, by the time be I got too. to high school, um, I was uh, on an episode of your podcast and you make sure to tune into that. (laughs) But um, we had mentioned like, I'd never considered, I was burnt the fuck out by the time I got to high school. In elementary school, I saw where my teachers poured into my curiosities and the things that I was absolutely interested in. Like I loved science in elementary school. I always liked tinkering I'm a hands-on learner so if I can touch stuff like I'm a muscle memory person retention is not my thing I have a shit memory right but Mm -hmm. when it comes to something I can do if I can do it if I can touch it I'll be able to replicate this I can do this again so science was wild fun and I'll never forget Mrs. Damore she saw that I loved it and so since my mom was a teacher I was there wild ass early in the morning so I was there maybe like 6 30 7 o'clock god bless my mama (laughs) but we were there. So she'd say in the morning, come up to the classroom. You can, you know, she let us like, and my best friend at the time, Alicia, still my best friend, um, Alicia, we were in the same um, class. And so we would go up and I'll never forget her just giving us mad science equipment. Cause I was also one of those kids that had, um, I stayed in the house. I was, you know, I would ride my little bike around the, the driveway, like in the backyard, but I mm-hmm, wasn't like mm-hmm. out playing with other kids. I was in a book or in my basement with like my science experiments. I had like a million different chemistry kits, telescopes. Like I was that nerdy kid that was just like, where's the books? Give me the books. I want to read the stories. (laughs) And so I would read and just experiment. And so she 
was like, here, here are slides. Put together your own slides and explore with your little microscope in the house. Here's yeah. litmus paper. Do all the litmus tests that you want, kid. Here are the pipettes. Here are the little thing. Like she encouraged that. And granted, she was one of the um, few white teachers that I had in the school, but it's also just the ability to educate and not just yeah. teach. You know what yeah. I mean? She was able to fill in those blanks where she saw that there was an interest that wasn't necessarily being met in the little bit of time that they had in class. And I feel like, you know, that's not at, that's not an absolute, that's not one, something that everyone is privileged to be able to experience in their, you know, educational development. But then yeah. too, that's also not a way that teachers are able to connect with their students in a lot of situations. And I think in terms of how travel and education comes into play, I think a lot of us conflate teaching English online with being, you know, a teacher that teaches abroad. So I'm curious if yeah. you can like clarify that uh, distinction for yeah. us. Like, what is the difference? Because I've also interviewed to be um, an online teacher, right? I interviewed yeah. with um, a company and I felt like, all right, well, I, you know, decent grass. I can't spell, but I know my yeah. words. You know what I mean? Like I, I speak well, yeah. I can teach English online. That's not rocket science. I know plenty of people yeah. that are doing it. Right. Yeah. However, that's different than teaching abroad. So I feel like when a lot yeah. of people think, well, I'll just fall back on teaching. Like how does, yeah. how does that look in terms of your experience um, teaching. And then when someone says I teach English online, like if you could yeah. clarify that distinction. Yeah, that's a great question. So I would even go as far as saying there's three, well, four. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, my experience teaching abroad, I was teaching in American and international schools. So basically these are schools that require that you already have like training, um, teacher certification, state state certified uh, training um, that you have, you know, of course that, that automatically comes with a degree, but you have at least two years of experience um, or, you know, you have experience just being abroad, maybe teaching other places. So they want you to be a qualified teacher. And in these American and international schools, basically all they're doing, I mean, I just, the best metaphor that I have is they just pick up an American school take it from America and drop it down in another country. Okay. Um, the difference is you're working with a lot of expatriate students. So these are gonna be the students whose parents were most likely hired to come with a multinational business. Um, oh. You know, you're, you're working, you're gonna be teaching um, the elite kids. I mean, mm -hmm. even in the UAE, I had the, I had the, one of the my kids was kids, the- right? No, like this is like, kids of the shake right so these oh. are like right elite local so right my I had a, I had a student who was the grandson of the owner of the school who was in this like lineage to the shake um and then you have like last name carries right it's very I'll say tribal but you know just the elite locals mm -hmm. let me say that and then you do have the the children of the diplomats and the embassy and you know all those gotcha. folks as well so you're not, it's not public schooling, right? Yep. With it, with American and international schools. These are tuition-based schools that are oftentimes for profit, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the pay that teachers want in the States is the pay that we actually get abroad. Wow. And 
in addition to the salary, you know, you get your apartment paid for, you get your medical, you get your retirement, you get your return flight every year. So what we're not getting, right, the, the middle-class lifestyle that we can't make in the teaching profession in the U.S., we get that plus a little more abroad. So that's American wow. and international schools. Now, the UAE, which is why I say I guess there's four categories, is because they had this whole educational reform where even in their public schools, they started recruiting expat teachers. And not just from America. Americans are actually the lower population, us and Canadians. It's the Brits, it's the Irish, it's um, you know, folks from different part of parts of Europe who are teaching in their local schools. Wow. So they're still work. It's a public school, you know, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not tuition. And even if it is, you know, it's a, it's a little tuition, um, but they're bringing those teachers into those schools. The students are regular students, you know, most mm -hmm. likely Emirati or from some surrounding Arab country or, you know, the children of folks who are in there in the country. Um, but yeah, so you could work in that. And, and they, the, the UAE is not the world. So I have to be honest about that. They are an exceptional place because of that educational reform. Um, but the, the, the teachers who worked for the government school made more than the folks who worked in the private schools. And they were, you know, 27th floor of this build a skyline, like overlooking all this banking. So that was Man. them. <laughs> right. And, and still you have to have that teach that background in teaching. Yeah. Um, teaching online. I know specifically about like Cambly, um, Q Kids, mm -hmm. uh, some of those things. I think, and I don't have the experience. I've also done an application for it as well, though. They're looking for um, a language, like uh, you're, you're practicing language with, yes. it's not even just kids though. I mean, even adults mm -hmm. will log onto those yes. programs. A friend of mine is working with it now uh, where he, he was telling me about someone who's in the military, like on in active duty right now, who logs into the website I just want to learn English, you know, and, and he's teaching him English. Why not? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And, and you're getting paid what, like $20 an hour. Um, you only get so many hours, you know, people could yeah. book like one person could be selected more than another person. Mm -hmm. So it really is just that, that language exchange and you could do it from anywhere in the world. Um, I would, I would say, yeah, I mean, I think that's fine. As far as the credentials, I think you just have to you know, do the interview yeah, and be selected. It's so much easier to do. Yeah, yeah. I've volu not volunteered. I uh, interviewed with uh, Q Kids. They ain't hiring okay, me. Okay. But <laughs> as far as doing That's the, um, the hiring, you know, the interview part, I did um, my little uh, TFL, the, the, tef the teaching as, mm -hmm. yep. Mm -hmm. Did that on the internet, paid a good uh, Groupon fee and bullshitted my way through that little test mm -hmm. and once you do that you are you submit that and then they'll schedule an interview with you um I had a I have a friend that I don't know if she still does it but she was just like bro wild bread smart easy you log in at 3 a.m and play little computer games with the kids online so yeah it's absolutely a way for people who have uh, digital capabilities that have, yeah. of course, a degree is more preferable, but I don't know that you have to have a degree to teach at one of those like um, little online, not little online, because there's enrichment, people are learning, but I don't know yeah, that, yeah. well, they're definitely, the qualifications are very different because I've never had teaching experience in the traditional sense. I've only taught like dance classes, but it's teaching experience. Yeah. Like I've worked with kids, yeah. I've had the 
you know, experience of I'm in charge, I'm responsible for putting everything together that we're doing today in this class, if you will. So, and, you know, I've worked with kids in different um, areas, but that was my resume experience, right? But that being said, it's one of those things that gets kind of lost in translation, if you will, when people say, oh yeah, well, I teach English abroad. That's different than saying I am an international educator. Like I teach overseas or, you know, like I think that that's something to be pointed out. Yeah. And there is, I want to mention it too. It's called EPIC. I don't remember what it stands for, but it is a program that will place people in like the Asian countries because, you know, for a lot of the Asian students, like school is their job. And in addition to their, you know, maybe 7.30 to 3, they also mm-hmm. go to school from 3 to 6, right? Oh, so they will hire like folks like us to come over mm-hmm. and teach in these uh, Hagwan, Hagwan schools. So that is that is more of the traditional, you know, I teach English abroad. Yes. Um, and they have a good salary too. That. Yeah, I know. I know they can make a good $3,000 a month. Um, But I think I think the question as far as like, you know, what's the how do you differentiate the different types of teaching abroad? I know a lot of folks who are looking to live abroad. Imagine that, you know, the language piece would allow you to live abroad. And I I think that's questionable. Yes, you could go and backpack around the world on that. I think that's completely fine. Mm -hmm. But when you have folks talking about, I'm going to take my family abroad and I'm going to do this teaching Mm -hmm. English, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not going to work. It's It's not not teaching English online. It's actually showing up to a school. Cause I've had a couple of um, guests that taught English abroad, but it's different than being a, a teacher that right. works for a school that happens to be overseas versus teaching English. And my job, my primary function is to teach these children English. And I, you know, have my room and board paid for, but then I also right. have really good, like, so if you're looking to teach abroad, make sure you're paying attention to what it is you're absolutely, that you're applying to be responsible for doing. There is a, you know, difference between being a teacher at a school and teaching math to American students in yeah. Mexico versus teaching children English in, you know, th- um, in Phuket in Thailand versus teaching with an organization that lets you be remote and you're just teaching English online. So pay attention. <laughs> what the, there's a difference, <laughs> like right. put, put that respect on their name because yeah, that's, <laughs> I didn't consider like you guys get to live the lives that you deserve to live here in the States. You know what I mean? Like, you spend yeah, all this yeah. money and we time educating yourself yeah. and you are absolutely like, listen, kids are trash. They're beautiful. <laughs> Even abroad. But they're trash. <laughs> like they're supposed to be their kids. They don't know how to necessarily yeah. be, you know, not all of them. It's for some people it's inherent. They are just good, sweet, kind hearted, natured people. And they, you know, start like that as kids and go into their adulthood. God bless them. But other people, it takes a little time to develop into that special sauce of being a good person. You know what I mean? So kids can be a time and I can't, (laughs) and then like that whole language barrier. So it's just like, you got some little snot nose ass, somebody kid in your face talking about some other wild shit in a different language. And it's just like, it's beautiful though. 
Because you got you that can, and that's the beautiful thing, right? Well, for early childhood, it's like I don't need a standardized test to show me their progress. I see it every day, mm. and that was the beautiful thing about Morocco. I would have kids talk to me in English, you know, talk to their parent in French, talk to another kid wow. in Arabic, you know, like that multilingual, quadruple lingual, you know, <laughs> and and or you know, speak in Arabic and French, and they just don't speak English, you know. So mm. teaching them those little English words yeah. every day, it's beautiful. Wow. Now, the snot-nosed ones is those sixth graders that I will not have anything to do with. Yeah, I don't miss <laughs> my, um, that, that, when I taught dance class, I had babies, like your preteens, and then your teenagers. The babies were cute, but it's just the, um, um, Miss Dana, Miss Dana, um, it's, it's my sister's birthday. And, and this whole time, they're not even making eye contact because they are like fixing their bows and they're looking at all the kids and they are just so excited to tell you that it's their cousin's birthday or it's their sister's birthday. And they're like, I hear you, baby. Can you put your tap shoes on while you say this to me? Let's talk about it after. <laughs> and then you've got your middle where you could reason with a nine-year-old. I, 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 that was my flow. I liked my like seven to maybe 12-year-olds. Those were my favorites. Yeah. And yeah. they get past that and they start smelling themselves like literally and figuratively because children Amen. smell as well. Amen. They start feeling like, oh, but because you look young, I feel like we're friends. Like we look closer in age because I'm 16 and you look 18. Check this out. I ain't here to be one of your little friends today, girlfriend. <laughs> I'm your teacher. It's some older kids. Exactly. Uh, I, I don't got time for that. We can't both be in a bad mood. We can't both be PMS. Exactly. Like, that ain't for me. Exactly. God bless those of y'all that deal with it. But for the mm-hmm. teachers that do pick up and go abroad, what has your experience been in finding out why some of them are leaving? What has your research kind of, you know, yeah. given you the lens to see? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a grapple with this one because I'm still writing my dissertation. So this is getting into my chapter five and chapter six. And right now, and this is the thing, I have to figure out how it all comes together. I am basically making an argument that, you know, a person's decision, well, and I interviewed 13 life historians and I call them life historians and not participants because the research is theirs, right? This is, the, these are their stories. Yes life history interviews. So, you know, each of them, I interviewed them at least for a good five hours a piece. You know, I'm driving between Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Russell Kima, you know, we gonna do the first one, then we'll do the second interview, third interview. So I really got to like build a relationship with these life historians. They're their lives. They're telling the the history of their lives. That's what it is. So when it comes to the decision for some of them to leave, it really is either a expression of discontent, right? They, they have some type of discontent with the US K through 12 experience and, and their own experience, right? It may be systemic, it may be external school factors like society, you know, yeah. I can't afford to do this, this and this, or it's an expression of audacity. And I'm, I'm kind of labeling audacity, like, you know, for the ones who had a chance to study abroad, right? Mm-hmm. I want to get back to that world abroad. So I'm going to fall into teaching like myself, and I'm going to use teaching to take me back into the world. Or folks who grew up in, the, in families, right, who were travelers. Yeah, we used to travel all the time. My brother moved over here. So I was like, well, I want to do something too. Um, 
and then decide to go abroad. So like this decision of aspiration, I aspire to be in the world and I'm going to use teaching as a tool or because administrators as well, I got a couple admin, um, I'm going to use my experience expertise in education to go abroad. So there's one thing that I'm playing with, D, and I'm going to just grapple with it out loud. I'm calling it the daily grind. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about the daily grind, there's a specific person, and I can say this out loud because um, he's not actually a life historian. I'm just using his story as, you know, to, to kind of put an umbrella around all this. But uh, his name is Nathan Gibbs Bowling, and he was the National Teacher of the Year for Seattle, Washington. And the National Teacher of the Year competition is like, you know, amazing teachers who, who are, um, how do you say it when you somebody writes a letter on your behalf and then oh, recommended, you have to go through, denominated, okay. and all that jazz? Okay. Yeah, all okay. that. So for the state, he got it. He won. And uh, basically, once you win, you go to the national competition where you are competing with maybe six teachers and you're competing to go to the White House and be part of educational policy making, all that oh, stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So Nathan Gibbs Bowling was selected for Seattle, Washington, but he didn't win um, for the uh, national competition. Anyway, long story short, he had worked in Seattle for over a decade. And, you know, he's talking about all these factors on PBS uh, NewsHour, and he announces to the world, not only am I leaving Lincoln High School, I'm actually leaving the States and I'm gonna go and teach in Abu Dhabi. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is my study. And he went to yes. the American Community School. So I got a chance to interview him for the podcast and we're having this conversation like, but Nathan, one, you're a male teacher, two, you're a black male teacher, right? You're the epitome of what yeah. a lot of recruitment, they want you, they need you, you're great. Yes. You know, he, he was doing so many initiatives outside of the classroom. So I'm like, he is the ideal teacher. Why you leave? Like, yeah. why, why would you leave? And he was basically talking about these notions of daily grind. So kid funerals, mm -hmm. right? To have to continue to show up when, when you have some of your students are being gunned down, right? Yeah. Um, some of the students are, you know, bearing, bearing folks in the neighborhood, bearing their right, like uh, on, on kids, like, and then you have, you have to just show up, be a counselor for all these kids, you know? You got 30 kids who are grieving uh, a, a student. And, and what do you do? You, you supposed to be talking about math today, yeah. you know, and, and he has this amazing story that he uh, told that he did the eulogy at one of his um, mm. students' funerals. And after yeah. he did the eulogy, another student came to him and was like, and I'm gonna just like put some drama on it. Man, you really dope at giving, giving speeches. And he was like, I don't want to be known for that. Yeah, I don't no. want to be dope at, putting someone to rest, a kid to rest, right? So I'm like, these are notions of like the daily grind of when you're grinded down. It's not necessarily, oh, I don't want to teach this curriculum. It's while we're talking about student-centered conversations, how come we're not talking about teacher-centered conversations? And while teachers are asked to execute, 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 when do we get to recharge? Which is yeah. why I'm saying that travel, professional study abroad, I mean, there, there are components about travel that reinstores well-being. And even yes. though I don't have like, <laughs> like <laughs> it's not the vocabulary that's going with it yet, but I'm like, there is something significant about taking someone outside of America for restoration, especially yep. for black folks. 
especially for black folks. To your point, I'm seeing that in terms of the willingness for some people to travel during a pandemic, right? This is a global concern. It's not like, you know, just in the United States, we got like a little bit of ill. It's a, um, it's not uh, isolated to a certain region, right? So at this point, people that are traveling are to an extent making the decisions for themselves and their communities. And I, and I like to point out, I think I talked about this about two episodes back or so where the pandemic has given me another level of not travel shaming, right? Because initially there was that whole, oh, you always go to Miami though. You always in Atlanta, you always at Vegas, like buy a passport or put money into a passport instead of some sneakers, or you out here buying your phone or worried about your hair, but did you buy a passport? Have you seen the world? Chill. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's not the only way to travel. Wait, are those conversations being had? I miss those conversations. Yes, there are memes that'll say, while you spending money on technology or you out here trying to be jiggy in a belt, that same $700 could have got you, you know, a world experience. It could have gotten you an education. Like, there's no need to police other people's travel decisions. If Vegas is your flow, because you like to gamble or you like to party, then by all means go to fucking Vegas. Like if that's the extent to one where your dollar can take you or, you know, your comfort zone in terms of being that far away from home, because I don't know what responsibilities you may have to like get back to quickly at home. There's so many reasons why, you know, people like to police decisions, especially around travel. But that's one of the first things that I had to let go, right? That being someone that has passport stamps makes you a more um, seasoned traveler or that makes you a better traveler or, oh, I'm doing something because I've, you know, left the country. I love what it's done for me, but that's not the only experience to travel. Like that's not the only way to do it. Right. So that's the first kind of tier of travel shaming that I was able to identify for myself and remove myself from right but then on top of the next level to that is at least for me and my experience of how I am observing and uh interpreting people's needs and desires but more so their need to travel is like this whole idea of pandemic travel people are starting to realize how much travel is really playing on their they're being okay, their mental health, that being able to detach yourself from what is your norm to give yourself opportunity, um, new experiences. And I am a huge proponent of intentional travel. And I think that with more of us being forced into realizing how important travel is to us, it's kind of like, I've learned to not judge people that are okay traveling during a pandemic the same way I did at the beginning of the pandemic. Because initially it was stay home, period. Why you can't just sit still? Not everybody has the same home life. I love my home life. I'm happy as shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? My man yeah. cooks. Yeah. I, I'm I'm good. I'm comfortable. I also have now, you know, it took a while to find each other, but like I have someone to spend time with. I'm not sitting in the house by myself now a year into it. Whereas that's not everybody has the same um, mental base to start from 
And then you add on isolation. Then you add on possibly, you know, losing a job or being asked to work more now that you're working from home or, you know, having to educate your children firsthand while trying to work a remote job or being a essential worker and not knowing what to do with your child and their education. Like there's so much shit that we're all being, you know, forced to deal with as a global community in terms of our restrictions with COVID and mental health is a thing. And yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. very yeah. important yes. thing that is, you know, become more of a tangible idea and with travel being what it is. And so many more, so much more of our uh, community seeing how accessible travel is and how much of the world belongs to us as a unit. It's like, well, how do you expect people to come to this awakening to what travel is, but then shit on them for really needing that as part of their life? You know what I mean? Or needing that to put themselves in a good mental space. Like not everybody is able to, you know, detach themselves from crowds. Like I don't recharge from crowded environments and crowded spaces. I'm more of a when I need to catch my breath, when I need to pull shit together, I want to be by myself. I want to be in yeah, my yeah, home yeah. with those closest to me. Other people get that joy, that resurge of energy and like that inspiration from being around other people. And it's not fair for me just because I like quiet and being by myself and sitting on the couch and looking out the fucking window. Just because right. that's how I feel good doesn't mean that's how other people feel good. And that ability has been taken from a lot of people or compromised for a lot of people. So that has been a really like new space for me in the the realm of travel and now being able to see how, you know, just it's like first of all thank you for opening my eyes to how, you mm. know, education is just so many tiers and levels, especially as it revolves around travel now, because I'm with the shits when it comes to travel. Like, oh, we talking about, you know, <laughs> computer cords. All right, though, but they all travel, right? Because most of them is done made in China. And now think about all the places, like any way to make anything related to travel, I am with. But especially as it pertains to me loving kids, it's just like, well, damn, travel not only has the potential to influence the next wave of educators by allowing them to be global citizens earlier and then pour Mm -hmm. those experiences into how they want to now educate the next generation. But it's also a fair lens for people to say, well, travel doesn't have to just be about the vacation in terms of removing myself from what I do as an educator here. I could actually have the life that I deserve as an educator by taking myself out of my, you know, my primary experience with education. So I'm like really happy that you brought this up because as many friends as I have in education, like as much as I'd be sad to see a lot of them go, I don't think that, you know, they should be burdened with, you know, that, well, now I'm in debt. Like I watched my mom spend her money on the children that she was educating and she taught at a private school. You know what I mean? It's just like, so these kids is paying tuition, but so y'all don't have money for programs. Like, so my mom is paying Mm -hmm. for costumes for these kids to do their play. And even, um, my, my best friend in Kentucky, like her daughter goes to a private school and I know, you know, I live my, I love my pseudo guy baby, 
but I'd be like, check this out. Stop emailing me about your school. Your mother pays tuition. You know what I mean? I'd be like, what they want? Like what these kids, like what they want? It's like, so you can pay for your child's education, but then it's still like, so, but y'all have the audacity to ask for more. And I just feel like that middle ground is the teachers. You guys are not always given that grace to, you know, understand your people. You get to be individuals outside of what you provide for your communities. And it's not fair that you guys are. And I think the, another way the pandemic has opened a lot of our eyes to this situation is that y'all ain't glorified babysitters. Now that more parents are, you know, having parents put their hands (laughs) into what education looks like. It's like, oh, so you weren't just teaching my kid. My kid was actually coming to you and expressing to them that this is bothering me or this is uncomfortable for me. Or like your example to the teacher that's giving eulogies, like teachers aren't just teachers, you know, like a good teacher, I should say, because unfortunately not everybody has good teachers, but a good teacher an educator is so much more than just a teacher. And y'all are being burdened with a lot We're of being extra grinded shit. down, grinded down. Yes. Damn. Cause I know it's a lot of parents looking at their kids. Like, I don't even like you. I know your teacher don't like you. <laughs> there you go. It's like, I love you, but I don't have to like you. And she don't have to love you. <laughs> But I'm gonna hope that she likes you so she can deal with you because that's that right. fine mind that we ain't got. Damn. <laughs> so what overall in your like experience from the not the educate the ah oh, man uh, there's a oh there's a word and it words mean all the incredible things. So in your experience, I'm looking for it in a fashion that distinguishes that you have firsthand experience as an educator who has used travel to kind of be a different lens to view education from Mm. what is something that you could leave with someone that is possibly looking to support themselves as a you know digital nomad with education as well as someone who is an educator, but then thinks that they may want to remove themselves from the environment that they're in. I guess the distinction between someone that is a traveler and wants to possibly teach versus someone yeah. who is a teacher and wants to travel. Like, cause they, they don't, they can be the same box, but they also don't yeah. have to be the same box. Like what is like, yeah. You're imparting wisdoms from your (laughs) research because it's not like this is just an idea that you have. You you know what I mean? Like you are, to be clear, if we haven't mentioned it, you're getting your doctorate in like this, like a dissertation isn't like, you know, your senior thesis. (laughs) I did one of those. (laughs) It was a joke, you know, like this is real. This is research. This is, you guys put so much of yourself. Proud sister moment. My brother's a, a fellow at Brown. And love the kid, pathobiology, God bless him. But it's like, I can firsthand see what getting a PhD in some shit actually is. Like it's stress. Like y'all This is This is the dissertation back here. That's all that. (laughs) Yeah. How can you impart your expertise to us lay folks? 
Um, okay, kind of listening to the questions, there, there was a there were a couple of things that came to my yeah. mind. I'll start with um just in order for me to be authentic, I have to like be intentional about who I'm speaking with and who I'm not speaking with. So as far as the folks who are interested in like education and travel, but they don't have a background in teaching, um, the first thing that comes to my mind Dee, is the TEPL and TESOL. And I think one of the things that people don't realize about having that credential is that those are the credentials that will give you a pathway or a pipeline into higher ed. So when you have your TESOL, which I, I don't, I don't know, I think the TESOL is more of like the degree in teaching English as a second language and the TEFL is a certification. I don't know. I'm going to just say, I know some TESOL folks who are actually going for their PhDs now, but those, um, those backgrounds or certifications, you can go and teach in higher ed uh, with that, with, without a teaching certification. Let me just say that. Oh, so K okay. through 12 is more where you want those state certified teaching um, uh state certified teaching credentials and then in higher ed you know teaching English as a second language you know uh, teaching English as a foreign language those that's the pipeline that way a lot of people don't talk about that which I think is interesting um, and then the second thing I'm thinking about is just some resources particularly for folks who are working in the U.S. education system and who are thinking about uh, teaching abroad. I know I've, I've talked to a couple of different folks who are like, yeah, I've been thinking about getting out of the States and the Black SIP movement is real. Um, I do wanna give a couple of resources, which is International School Services. They are a, not a recruitment agency. They're an agency that helps uh, teachers find vacancies abroad. So when schools are looking to hire teachers, you can go to them. And shameless plug, I did interview a couple of reps from ISS in um, episode 42 of Abroad in Education. So if you want to hear about some of the policies and stuff that they use, you can go and listen to that episode. And then I'm also thinking about uh, Search Associates. They're another big um, recruitment. I'm saying recruitment. They're, they're an agency that helps okay. teachers find uh, positions abroad. So you can go to them as well. Now, there is a lot of conversations, critical conversations that are being had about search associates because of um, racialized practices and, you know, black teachers and how we're getting the lower end of the totem, hmm. the totem pole. Um, but I think that they're a reputable source as far as finding uh, positions abroad. And then the other thing with, I mean, as far as my research, I am definitely a person who can, I mean, my advocacy is not for recruitment. You know, I do get a lot of questions uh, from folks who are asking, you know, how do I teach abroad? I think it's cute. My, my, where I am right now today is because of my experience teaching abroad. But as far as like policy solutions, you know, uh, actually providing solutions for the issues, I am a person who wants to have more conversations about retention and not just retention in the sense of how do we keep teachers, but retention and restoration. How do we restore teachers? I think it's amazing and it's consistent. You know, we come into these schools first year, second year, novice, you know, the whole statistic about within the first four years, teachers leave. How can we be more intentional about restoring teachers in those four, first four years and not restoration in professional development? Here's how you teach this curriculum, but restoration in the sense of how do I make sure that you're okay, that yeah. your well being is taken care of, that you can, that your basic needs are made. And, and you know, just the, how do you say it? Just like the purpose 
why did you even choose education and how can how can that come out in the classroom right that humanizing connection yes. between teachers and students yeah damn like layers on layers of information but i think that you've given a great base for people to start whereas Someone that doesn't have that experience, girlfriend, you can absolutely teach that uh, English class on the uh, good Lord's internets of this here Amen. world. <laughs> However, you may not necessarily, don't think that you're going to necessarily live that uh, upper middle class and upper class life without the actual experience. There is a lane that is out there for educators that maybe feel that burnout. And I think that it's a noble you know, undertaking that you are, you know, reaching out for answers in, but it's just unfair for the world to think that one person is going to be able to figure that out. And I would um, love to see as someone that loves the teachers and has been absolutely impacted by the good teachers I have had. Shout out to Professor Marsha Darling, that absolutely was the only professor I ever felt like I learned something from mm. in my college education. I had some good teachers. I had some good teachers, but Professor Darling, I actually learned from. She was my um, history of African-Americans teacher. And it was one of the first teachers that actually, um, I that was the actual, no, damn. That was the first teacher I had outside of elementary school that took it upon herself to pour into me outside of my classroom. Mm -hmm. My mother mm -hmm. spent all yeah. of this good tuition money. Shout out to that academic scholarship as well. But I wasn't on full scholarship. I was on a partial academic scholarship. And uh, all those, you know, I had pretty good teachers in high school. I had some incredible teachers in high school, but none of them poured into me outside yeah. of the classroom, the way that I had in elementary school and the way Professor Darling did for me. And a really, an educator is such a gift. So thank you mm. for figuring out how to feed into these educators because they change lives. You know what I mean? Like the right Amen. teacher, there are plenty of stories on people who have undertaken certain professions you know, made better decisions in life just because that adult, that figure of authority where the most of us spend most of our time is in school, honestly. Yeah. As yeah. young people, we spend so much time in school and these are a lot of the adults that we interact with. And when these adults are fully functioning people in themselves, they're so much better equipped to pour into like our Amen. greatest resource. Everybody wants to say kids yeah. are the greatest resource, but what are you doing to help the people that are pouring into our kids? And I think that what you're doing, I, I hope for one, your uh, research to really give what you're looking for. Cause I know that can also be a disappointing area in research that people forget is that one is time consuming, but you, a lot of you is invested in the stuff mm -hmm. that you really look into. So I, I really hope that this gives you results that you're looking for and you see the, the importance in the work that you're doing, but then also that there's actually something to come of it. 
you know, because I know yeah. plenty of people have, yeah. you know, made great discoveries and people have, you know, <laughs> figured shit out, but then nobody listens, you know, or nobody yeah. wants, like, I'm giving you the alley-oop, like, I'm telling you what we need. <laughs> and if no one is, you know, like pouring back into you, I, I can see how you doing the work of trying to help all the other teachers can be a drain. So thank you. And I really hope that that, you know, you get what you're looking for in this good Lord's work that you are doing. Thank you. So and where that's why can... I'm grateful for folks like you. Thank you for giving me a space to even talk about this. Where can the people find you? If there are educators that are looking for information and maybe you can point them in the right direction, or if there are just people that are just interested in how they can give of their story to you and your research, or if they are just looking for information, where can people find you and the work you're yeah. doing? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. I love it. Um, so, so thank the Lord. I actually have a couple of articles that are being published soon. So um, we'll start with, yeah, Google Tiffany Lachelle Smith and see some of the good work. Um, as far as social media, of course, Twitter and Instagram, it's abroad underscore in underscore ed abroad and ed on Twitter and Instagram. And then you can always go to the website abroadandeducation.com. I will, of course, have all of your links in the description box. Tiffany, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your insight and your expertise into, I think it's a, a pocket that people like to just glaze over. When they think uh, teaching abroad, I think people immediately go to teaching online. That's like the new yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It thing, right? But there's so much more. And how did we get here and how do we get better? So if you're yeah. interested in that topic in particular, please reach out to the good sister. And uh, she's much better <laughs> equipped to tell you where to go for the right information and opportunities than, um, than I am. But I'm happy to absolutely be the plug and a platform for that information for you. So guys, again, there's another incredible example of how travel is so much more than vacation. It's not the wrong of vacationing, but you can get so much more from looking at it from the lens of a traveler. So be sure to holler at travelingshippodcast.com for um, wrinkled merch. Yours doesn't have to be wrinkled. My shirt is wrinkled because... <laughs> Your girl here just doesn't do the irons. Hey, but this merch, travel resources, past episodes, new episodes, travelshippodcast.com. And of course, if you can't remember anything else, you can go there and find the links to Tiffany and her work. So thank you, Tiffany. Thank you, listeners. Thank you. And I'll fuss with y'all next week. Bye.